I just loved my time in the back room at Goodwill's and especially in Tucson on Houghton Road, a little shout out to the folks on Houghton Road. They are so incredibly knowledgeable and it's just it. You know, they will have a hamper of clothes and, and the experienced ones can put their hand in, pull it out and just, you know, a little pinch between the fingers and they know where this should go, you know, without even really looking at the tag, though the tag is very important. I mean, that's something you see around the world. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Downsizing, decluttering, discarding. After you've decided what sparks joy and donated the things that don't serve you, what happens to all that stuff after it's been conmarried? Adam Minter is here to help us unpack the side of the equation that we don't often get a chance to learn much about. Adam Minter is a columnist and author based in Malaysia. For nearly two decades, his journalism has focused on waste, recycling, and stuff, and the hidden global world that it inhabits. His first book, Junkyard Planet, was a best-selling dive into the recycling bin. His new book, Secondhand, is a global journey into what happens to our stuff after we no longer want it. We're excited he's here today to help us better understand how the afterlives of our purchases impact the global economy and our environment. Welcome to Spark Joy, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Adam. We're so glad you're here. And we're really grateful for your book, Secondhand, which is really a start to lift the curtain that often separates us from what actually happens to our things once we drop them off at a local donation center or something of that nature. You know, those things that no longer spark joy and we are ready to send them on to their next life. And I'm going to guess that based on just the complexity of that world, this book took tons of research and I imagine lots of global travel. We know that you're very passionate about exploring reuse. What inspired you to start this particular project? Well, it starts from a very personal place and one that I think a lot of your listeners can identify with. A couple of weeks after my first book was published, my mother passed away. Oh, and wow. My sister, yeah. Yeah. And my sister and I were faced with, I guess you can call it a problem, but a dilemma, a situation maybe is a more polite way to put it that, you know, I think, you know, so many Americans are faced with. And that is, you know, after the funeral and everything else, we still had to figure out what to do with my mother's property. She had a small apartment. And it had a lot of great stuff in it. But my sister was living in a New York City co-op with her husband. They didn't have a lot of space. And at the time, my wife and I were living in Shanghai in a one-bedroom apartment. We didn't have a lot of space. So we had to figure out what happens with that stuff. And, and it really you know, took over a year. Some of it was moved into a garage. I'm sure this all sounds very familiar to you. And when we would both be in the country or in Minneapolis, so we'd go through it. And and one day we were there and we said, okay, we're going to finish this. We're going to decide who gets what, you know, what happens to what. And what was left at the end, really literally at the end, was my mother's china. And she loved that china. It's something she loved. 
but my sister has China. I have China. And if, I'm sure you've seen this. If you go into a lot of American homes, they have grandma's China and the other grandma's mm-hmm. China and a parent's China and their own wedding China. And yet we knew it meant something to my mom. And so we had this moment where, you know, I said to my sister, you take it. And she said to me, no, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. <laughs> and finally, we said, you know what? We're going to take it to Goodwill. And that's what we did. We put it in the back seat and we drove over to Goodwill in Hopkins, Minnesota. It's a drive through Goodwill, which, you know, speaks a lot to how much stuff we all have, kind of like a McDonald's. And as we're waiting in line to drop it off, I had kind of an epiphany. And I took out my phone and I took a picture of the drive through because I realized at that moment, even though I've been covering waste and recycling and all these different issues for years, I didn't know what actually happened to things when they went through the donation door. And so I took that picture. And as I took that picture, I realized I'm going to write a book about what happens to things after they go through the donation door. So it was that very personal beginning, you know, and sitting there next to my sister, wondering what happens to this thing that, you know, meant so much to my mother, but, you know, in Colmery terms, you know, didn't really spark joy in us. And so that was the beginning of a a 12 country journey. Wow. That is quite a journey. And You're right. That's the story is something we often hear in our speaking engagements and our time with clients. What do we do with that China? Or how do we make these tough decisions? Where are these things going? Where should Mm -hmm. they end up? And what we've noticed is that our culture has really started to romanticize this journey that our belongings Mm -hmm. take. We've placed a lot of importance and value on moving them along to a better place and really extending the life cycle, so to speak. But there's a big need for our things to be wanted and used, which is often where the secondhand market comes into play, creating surges at donation centers and thrift stores. How much of those donated items are actually sold? Well, that's a very, you know, interesting and very tricky question. You know, if you go to the American thrift store, any American thrift store, whether it's a Salvation Army, a Savers, you know, an independent one-off store on a main street somewhere, or to a Goodwill where I spent a a great deal of time researching this book, on average, only about one-third of the things that go through the door and land on the retail shelves sell off those shelves. And if you can do better than one third, you know, that sounds very, very low. And and that's really a heartbreaking number to a lot of people because they want to think, you know, oh, I I gave this thing and it's going to go on the shelf and somebody's going to take it. But for all kinds of reasons that maybe we'll get into, you know, that's not the case. So two thirds of it doesn't sell. Now, one thing that's misunderstood about that figure, I've I've had it, you know, spoken back to me uh, with some misunderstanding. That doesn't mean that two thirds goes into the trash because that's not what happens. There's a lot of other places for it to go but it may not go to a place that we can easily identify with. You know, in my experience, people, when they donate something, they want it to either go to, you know, quote unquote, poor people, people of lesser means, or they want it to be in a circumstance that they recognize. You know, I can understand, you know, the person who's wearing the sweater because these are very personal items to me. You know, I I have some emotions invested in them. But more often than not, if it doesn't sell on the retail shelves, if it's apparel, if it's textiles, which is is the highest volume used good uh, that goes through the global secondhand economy, it's going to be exported. And that means it can go to any range of places, uh, you know, West Africa, where I spent time for this book. A lot of it goes to Southeast Asia, where I'm speaking to you from South Asia, places like India and Pakistan, where people have high demand for 
uh, used North American uh, secondhand clothing because it's it's generally considered to be of pretty good quality. But that doesn't mean that it's always going to be worn either. Um, sometimes when this stuff is exported, it may not be of a quality or there may not be demand for it to be worn. And so it may be cut up and turned into wiping rags. And that's a second use. And that's really shocking to people. But, you know, the wiping rag industry is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry around the world because we all need rags to wipe things down, whether it's say, a dipstick in a auto garage or or a countertop in a hotel bar that's a really big business. And those are, there are those kinds of businesses in the United States as well. And then, you know, it, when we get into things like furniture, when we get into knickknacks, again, it, it all depends on who's coming through those stores. If you're near the U.S.-Mexican border, vast amounts of it flow into Mexico and South America. But there is always going to be stuff that's left over that people simply don't want. And that is the stuff that will end up in a landfill or an incinerator. And you know, I'm always asked, you know, what percentage? And it really depends on the day. It depends on the place. But the one thing I, I try to tell people is that if you're a thrift store, the last thing you want to do is is toss something into a landfill or an incinerator because it costs you money. Like all of us, you know, these businesses pay a landfilling bill, a garbage mm-hmm. bill, and so they don't want that to go up. So they have a financial incentive, which is a very strong incentive, as we all know, to find somebody somewhere who wants to buy it. I completely agree with what you said at the beginning of, of what you just were speaking about. And that's this idea that all of us want to think that the things that no longer spark joy are going to go to someone else and they will spark joy for them. And, right. you know, as you said, we know that that's often just not the case. I mean, sometimes it is, you know, sometimes those items that we love that are in really good condition end up with someone who would never be able to afford something like that at retail. And it's, you know, a really great thing. But as we know, a lot of those things are just don't, end up where we think they're going to end up. But you mentioned something about high demand and low demand. What Mm -hmm. kinds of things have you found were in higher or lower demand, not only in our local thrift stores, but in the world? I mean, obviously textiles are are the most prevalent thing, but what are the things that people are looking for outside of, you know, like collectibles or things that are antiques or things like that? One of the fun things about this book, and there was a lot of fun to doing this book, was I was continually surprised and, you know, things would just come at me that I just didn't see coming. And let me give you one that just shows you how intricate and amazing this global market and stuff is. I mean, it is an apparel-oriented one. It is, it is a clothing-oriented one, but it's one that it had never occurred to me at all. I spent time in Benin, which is a small country in West Africa. And I spent some time with the used clothing traders. They're they're big importers of used clothing in Benin, and they're very good at sorting the clothes for the various countries all over West Africa, especially Nigeria. And one of the things that I kept hearing in Benin that just astounded me, and it didn't make any sense at all, is people kept asking me, because I'm a foreigner, and if if you're walking, there's a whole district in Kotno, the commercial capital of Benin, that's devoted to used clothing. And, And the only reason to be a foreigner walking around that area is because you are a trader. You're somebody who maybe has huge supplies of secondhand clothing, say, in the United States or somewhere else. So whenever I would meet somebody there, as I was reporting on this, they'd assume that I I was a trader and they'd ask me, do you have Canadian clothing? I Hmm. thought, what an odd question. And And it just didn't make sense to me. Why would they care if I have Canadian clothing? And it was only later, after I spent some time in Canada, because I had to figure this out, that I understood why. If you think about the global trade in used stuff, so much of it goes from wealthy countries 
to poorer countries. And so much of it goes from relatively cool countries, places like the northern United States, Canada, northern Europe, into relatively warm weather countries like Malaysia, where I'm talking to you from, or, or West Africa. Well, the thing is, if you go to, say, Florida, people in Florida wear their summer clothes for most of the year. But if you go to a place like Toronto, they're only wearing their summer clothes for a few months out of the year. So that means that their summer clothes haven't been worn very hard. They're usually in good condition. They haven't been washed very much, et cetera, et cetera. So because of that, if you're somebody in a warm weather country who wants to import used clothing in good condition, you're going to want to look at Canada, Toronto, you know, maybe Stockholm, Sweden. You're not going to want to think about, say, Miami, Florida, or Tucson, Arizona, because people have really worn out their summer clothes. And so that revealed to me uh, something that I didn't understand, which is Mississauga, Ontario, which is a neighboring community to Toronto, is one of the world's biggest hubs for used clothing. And again, it's emerged for reasons that are completely beyond how we usually think about these markets and ways demand works. But that explained to me why in Benin, this small country in West Africa, they were so keen to get their hands on stuff from Toronto. So the global second high-end market sort of operates that way. I mean, people in different places have their own reasons for wanting things, and you just never know what they are until you are there. You know, I was surprised, again, in West Africa, the number of people who wanted to import older televisions. But again, it's because they've developed expertise in how to fix those things oh, so wow. they can buy them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, say a 10-year-old television, which none of us want, in Ghana, which is a marvelous place to visit. If you ever get the chance to go to Ghana, go. It's a fantastic country. But they really want those because they have an expertise in repairing them. The cost of doing so, the labor is very low cost. And so as a result, you see all these televisions moving there that would never be repaired, would never be used in the United States or in Japan, where I spent time. You know, you just don't know. So it's, it's a marvelous world. And it really is this treasure hunt. And, and you sort of have to have faith when you drop your things off at a donation center or sell them. You know, the, more often than not, somebody out there is going to want that thing and they're going to figure out a way to get it. Are you saying then that things like those old TVs and even old technology or maybe even old media formats, that it's really okay to take those to the Goodwill stores, Salvation Army, that they will try to get them to where they go or... Let me go backwards. The media formats are tough. I mean, the VHS tapes, right? People don't want those. And I think it's, I think there's still some demand out there for DVDs and, and definitely demand out there for CDs. And we all know vinyl is very, very hot, but old media formats are tough. But electronics are very interesting. And, you know, some of the charities will export and they will deal with exporters. And, you know, it's a trade that has a, I believe, and as I've written in my books, it's, it's been unfairly maligned for a lot of reasons. But in general, if somebody in a developing country wants to import a television, wants to import an old computer, wants to import a 10-year-old smartphone, and there's a huge market out there for older smartphones, and you can kind of trace it. If, uh, if you remember Flickr, the old photo sharing uh, sure, uh, yeah. service, yeah, if you go on there and you look, this is something that surprises people. When you look, you can actually look up what cameras, what phones people are using to post photos onto Flickr. And you'd be astounded at the number of people using iPhone 4s and 4Ss to still post photos. People use those. So there's demand for that. And that just gets at the wider issues that, you know, just because you may not, and maybe even, you know, the manufacturers may not think of this as a good that can be used. There's somebody out there 
who maybe does. And so it's a matter of finding the charities that are supportive of exporting and they are out there or the businesses that are, they are out there and making sure that they get the stuff. We're all spending a bit more time at home these days for the health and safety of ourselves, our family, and our community. Are you feeling a little too close to your clutter for comfort? Maybe you're buried under stuff in the home office or craft space, or you're trying to carve out dedicated space for work or homeschool in your basement or on your dining room table. Or maybe you've noticed just how much time you're wasting looking for important papers and emails instead of shifting your time, energy, and resources towards the things that truly matter. During quarantine, my number one priority is to get as many people as possible clutter-free and prepared for the other side of this challenging season. If you're regularly asking yourself, where should I put this? Or am I letting go of enough? Or am I even doing this right? As you can Mari, a customized virtual tidying experience may be the perfect next step for you. While stay-at-home ordinances are activated, I'm continuing to offer virtual Kanmari-based active tidying lessons, including a tidy desk special, perfect for those working or learning from home. Visit ForTheLoveOfTidy.com and click Free Consult to discuss the various virtual organizing options available to help you dig out and choose joy once and for all. Wow, I just love that you've done this research and you're really helping us dig deeper here into what's happening to all of this stuff. And you mentioned quality and condition of things. And I think this is important for us to take a moment to discuss because, you know, we're living in the age of Amazon and fast fashion. I feel like this isn't helping the mm-hmm. quality level of the donations that are entering the system. Like you said, in certain climates, we're using certain types of clothing more, and that means they might be getting more worn out based on the quality of the initial purchase. Right. Do you see that as being something that the donation centers are dealing with behind the scenes here? And how do they handle yeah. that on the floor? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue. I mean, you're seeing it on the decluttering end. And if you go into the donation centers, into the Goodwill sorting rooms, it's an extremely important issue. There's actually a scene in the book, and this scene happened for me multiple times in, in donation centers in the sorting rooms, where a sorter, and these are really highly trained, very knowledgeable people. I, they're wonderful to talk to. They, they really know our stuff. Uh, she said to me at one point, she said, look, she says, this brand right here, she said, 18 months ago, for us at this Goodwill, this was a $4.99 brand. You know, if you know Goodwill, they'll, they have different pricing levels, which, you know, a $4.99 shirt at a Goodwill is a pretty good, is a pretty good shirt. She says, but over the last 18 months, you know, the quality has declined. And, and now it's a, I can't remember, I think she said a $1.99 shirt, or it's something that they don't even bother to put out on the floor. 
And she was saying to me, this has been a trend that they've seen for quite a while now. These good brands, the quality declining. So stitch counts going down in the fabrics, the stitching itself just not as well done, the dyes not fixing as well. Um, And we all know at least one of the major causes of this, it's the rise of fast fashion. Um, These garments that are really bought as temporary clothing, which, you know, when I grew up, the idea that you'd have temporary clothing, I mean, my mother used to make some of our clothing, you know, it was made to last, you know what I mean? But now they're seeing this temporary clothing and that's becoming a big problem for the donation centers and the charities on two levels. One, if you're donating things to a Goodwill that they can't sell, that potentially becomes a cost to them, or it means they're not making as much money from it and they can't do their charitable work from it. It also means from an environmental standpoint, you know, it's not going to be used as long. It may very well end up in a landfill or an incinerator, though Goodwill tries very hard not to do that with any apparel in particular. So that becomes a big problem. And it's not just the apparel, of course. I mean, we've seen it, I talk about in the book, furniture, you know, the rise of Ikea, you know, from the Mm -hmm. days where you would go and you'd buy that It'd be expensive, but solid oak table that, you know, can become a family heirloom to now sort of the Billy bookcase, which I bet you see once in a while during, you know, decluttering sessions, (laughs) you know, and they don't let you can't move them. You know, they're great. They're cheap. But once you put them in the back of a pickup truck, you know, they they start jostling a little bit and they break, you know, and so it's basically single use furniture, you know, maybe the single use is a couple of years. It's not quite like a plastic straw. But again, that becomes a cost for somebody. And there's more and more of that stuff. And what it does is when you have more and more of the stuff that can't be looked at, much less sold as a secondhand good, something that can be reused, it means that the Goodwills and the Salvation Armies and the Savers and the Corner Thrift Shop, they have to work even harder to find you know, stuff that they can sell. And that's what's happening. They need more and more donations to just sort of stand still. So it's, it's becoming a real problem and it's becoming a real burden and a weight on sort of, especially in North America, the thrift economy. Yeah. And I think you even mentioned they have gotten so good behind the scenes at Goodwill that they can touch the clothes and tell yes. like the quality of the fabric. I mean, oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, they're my heroes. I mean, they are. <laughs> I just loved my time in the back room at Goodwill's. And especially in Tucson on Houghton Road, a little shout out to the folks on Houghton Road. They are so incredibly knowledgeable and it's just it. You know, they will have a hamper of clothes and and the experienced ones can put their hand in, pull it out and just, you know, a little pinch between the fingers and they know where this should go, you know, without even really looking at the tag, though the tag is very important. I mean, that's something you see around the world. You know, what you see going on in a Goodwill in Tucson, Arizona is something that I saw going on in a sorting warehouse in Cotno Benin. You know, the mix of clothes is maybe different, but the people in, in Cotno, it's mostly men who are doing the, uh, the sorting. You know, they're able to feel that denim or feel that, you know, t-shirt and know this should go to this place in Nigeria and this should go to this place in Nigeria or wherever it may be. And they have, you know, so they have this incredible knowledge of, of what our clothing is today and where it should go. But they also have, if you get the chance to talk to them, such a wisdom about what's happened to quality over the last few years. And it, it isn't just, you know, folks in Tucson who are saying we're seeing a decline in quality. I mean, it's, it's people in the developing world, the markets for these secondhand clothes who are also, you know, really, um, you know, quite upset by it. You know, it's so interesting, but I have noticed just shopping and retail shops and looking at mm-hmm. brands that are still really expensive, but the quality 
is horrible. The fabrics feel terrible. And yeah. you can just see that it's just not what it used to be. And sometimes it's been like really shocking to see. And it, I guess it's good because it's kept me from buying a lot of things because it, you know, right. the quality and feeling a fabric that I just know is just not, it's just not right. It's just something is just not right. good about it. And, you know, a lot of times they're still very expensive. So it, it's super interesting. But yeah, that's really yeah. interesting that the, that the folks who, who work with this kind of thing can tell so quickly. And you know what? It's not just clothes and it's not just furniture either. I mean, I, I had a, an example pop up in my own life quite recently. You know, you may, and I'm sure some of your listeners may know the child's game Kerplunk. Sure. Which is a, yeah, it's, you know, it's a little sort of glass or plastic tube and you put sticks in it and then you dump a bunch of marbles onto the sticks and you pull them out and you see how many fall out. I played that game as a child and I had one. And recently my son, who is five years old, was given one. And we opened it up and he had played with the one that we have uh, back in the U.S. And it's, you know, it's, it's stiff. The sticks are strong. When you drop the marbles on them, they, they don't bend at all. And, and the one that he was given recently, it's made by the same, uh, it's, well, it's marketed by the same uh, brand, um, but it's just cheap. Mm-hmm. The sticks are thinner. The marbles are smaller. It doesn't have the same base. Um, the manufacturer has tried to save money in some ways. It's not only not as much fun to play, but it's simply not a good that I could see even putting out in a garage sale, say in North America. It's just so cheap. And yet I believe the price was probably roughly the same as the one that I had when I was a kid. And so this, you know, this persists throughout all of the stuff that we buy. Absolutely. And I, I do have to ask you, though, about the things that are not going to be sold. I have often talked with clients who have socks and underwear, clean, Mm -hmm. clean things, but things that they don't need anymore. And the question is always, should I put it in the trash or should we donate it? And I have always told them to go ahead and put it in the donation bag because two things. I feel like it's, it's fine to let the people at the donation center decide that we can Mm -hmm. let them decide whether or not it's something that they can use. And then just as you were saying, what I had always heard is that a lot of these textiles are shredded up and used for insulation generally right. in countries in South America, Central America, where poverty might be more of an issue. Mm-hmm. Either one of those things true? Am I telling my clients correctly? So the short answer <laughs> and unsatisfying answer is uh, it's complicated. Oh, dear. Yeah. So in general, for most countries, it's illegal to import undergarments. And I think stocks are included in that with most countries. And it becomes a health issue. And, you know, I don't need to go into the details. And I mean, I think we all have the imaginations. We know we know why uh, countries wouldn't want to import that stuff. Now, that's not to say it isn't occasionally imported. It is. I've seen it. But they really don't want it. If you are dropping that stuff at a donation center, it's more often than not going to end up into a waste bin. And I don't want to say that's always the case because there certainly are going to be exceptions. But the health concerns having to do with those kinds of materials are genuine. And so the uh, donation centers would just as soon not deal with those. You know, there are cases where you will see undergarments, socks, that kind of thing actually get diverted into insulation, into stuffing. And that's going to be where you have sort of like what we would call an institutional generator. So a hospital, for example. A hospital will generate a lot of undergarments, a lot of socks. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also have industrial laundries where they can clean that stuff. 
And then they are able to bundle that, you know, and say 300 pound bundles of, of cleaned up undergarments and sell them to a, uh, a company that may shred them and use them for stuffing and whatever application. So in those cases, it will happen, but that's just not something a lot of donation centers have the capacity or really interest in getting involved in. Wow, that's super interesting. You've definitely changed my perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, it's painful, you know, because I grew up in a small family recycling company. You know, we had a little can machine and everything else, and, and I hate waste. I mean, that's mm-hmm. for me, the way I was raised, by, especially by my grandmother, I mean, everything must have a value. You just got to look hard for it. And so whenever I come across something where it's like, well, yeah, you can look and look, but it just isn't there, you know, it, it really gnaws at me, you know, right. it just drives me nuts, you know? Yeah. I think there are a couple of things. So, I mean, Goodwill's, for example, is very good about taking almost any and everything, it seems like, uh, but there are a oh, few yeah. things they do refuse. I think, I think mattresses and toxic chemicals or aerosols or paints and things like that. Yep. They do turn away, right? Yeah. You know what else they turn away that's really interesting that I did? And it's not just Goodwill that turns it away, but it, more often than not, you'll see them turn away hide-a-beds and uh, lazy boys. I wondered why, and it really is very simple, and that's because they're dangerous to move. You know, if you're not careful, those things will flip out, and you could, you know, the bed mm-hmm. will pop out, and, and you can really, really hurt somebody. Wow. So if you're, if you're ever considering a lazy boy or, or a hide-a-bed, um, you know, uh, think about the long-term <laughs> implications yeah. of it. I mean, they're very handy, but, but they're extremely hard to sell. There's just, there just isn't that market for them. And the other one that I thought was I didn't see coming, but it makes sense when I think about it, is pianos. Mm. You know, and I grew up, everybody wanted a piano. Not everybody wants a piano anymore, and, and neither, does, for that matter, does Goodwill or <laughs> Salvation Army. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. One question that I know you probably get a lot is the questions about storage lockers. And here in New York City, everyone has at least one. And I have clients who have seven and more storage lockers full of things. At least they did when I started working with them. My goal is to get down to as few as possible. Right. Tell us a little bit about, and, and we have talked about on the show about how the storage locker industry is like the fastest growing business in the United States, yeah. accounts for millions and millions of dollars a year. And yet a lot of times people who have storage lockers never do anything with the stuff that's in them. They don't, yeah. it's not like Christmas ornaments or even seasonal clothes that they're getting in and out couple times a year they're just things that are just sitting in the storage lockers and eventually somebody has to deal with those things tell us a little bit about what your experience has been in in exploring sure storage locker industry 
Sure. Well, you know, the figure that knocked me out when I first started looking into it, you know, I'm a business journalist as well. And so I'm always interested in revenues. And and when I saw that the storage locker business generates bigger profits most years than Hollywood, I realized Americans must really have a problem with stuff. Wow. <laughs> and that's something you guys know in your bones, of course. But when you <laughs> see a number like that, it's it's just incredible. There is more storage locker space in the United States alone than the square footage of Palm Springs, California. I mean, that's a lot of stuff that people are pushing off out of their homes. And the other figure that, you know, and it's not true for every uh, community, but in a lot of communities, the cost of renting a storage locker per square foot exceeds the cost of rental for residential homes. So in other words, you know, some of us, not in every community, it depends on the local real estate market, but some of us are actually spending more money to store our stuff than we are to store ourselves. So, you know, it really speaks to the, you know, the clutter problem itself. And, you know, I think there are good reasons sometimes to have storage lockers. You know, some people do use them for their businesses and they're moving inventory in and out of, you know, the storage lockers. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a small business and you don't want to clutter up your home. But if you're using that storage locker because you've run out of closet space, it's probably time for a bit of a reckoning and you probably have uh, too much stuff and you're probably throwing away a lot of money. It's a great business in the sense that it's just like a subscription service, you know, on your computer. I've, I've had some of these where I've used a service, you know, a TV service or whatever for a few months. They still have my credit card and a couple months down the line. They're still charging me for it because I forgot to cancel. Well, the storage locker industry works in the same way. And it sort of, in my way of thinking, increases the cost of buying something. So say you bought that winter blouse for, I don't know, $39.99 a few years ago. If you have it in a storage locker, you can sort of think of yourself as adding to the price of it every year. You know, you're paying money to rent, you're renting space to store it. So it's it's an unhealthy uh, way to go about managing your things for sure, and it's and it's it's financially nonsensical, is what I would right. say. It just right. it's not healthy. You know, you guys know it as well, you, better than I do. I'm sure I'm, you've done some cleanouts, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I I love the reference you had in your book on that whole idea of spending more to store things than to house yourself. So yeah, you know, it's a simple calculation, just really dividing the square footage by the price or the cost of that uh, unit or the cost divided by the square footage, and then doing the same for your mortgage or your rental at home. I can't imagine a better reality check for those who are trying to figure out if it's cost prohibitive or valuable to store things in a, in a unit. Yeah, I mean, for me too, you know, I discuss in the book, I, the storage locker phenomenon is right up front in the first chapter. And and for me, you know, this book was kind of a journey. I never was a big shopper. You know, I'm not somebody who, it's just not me. And I became less of one and, and my family became less of one as I did this book and saw more and more excess and, and stuff that can't be reused and, and just, you know, people having too much for their own good. And I'm not making a judgment. It's just, you know, if you've got a storage locker full of stuff, you're, you're probably not spending your money wisely. And, and for me, you know, one of the, the real sort of epiphany moments was being at a storage locker 
Uh, and I described the scene at the top of the book with a man uh, cleaning out a storage locker that had been kept by his mother for years. And he had, she had two lockers and she was spending several thousand dollars a year after she, uh, well, she was doing it in her lifetime and after she passed away. And, you know, we opened up this locker and there was, you know, I think it was a 15 year old case of Coke you know, a Christmas edition unopened and, and just things like that. And, and it was for me a moment saying, wait a second, you know, culturally something has really sort of gone off kilter. Here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. I imagine your research has continued to impact your life. I'd love to hear about how you have changed your lifestyle, yeah. things you purchase, how much you buy, you know, since really diving deep here into the secondhand market. I mean, it's had a huge impact on me and my wife um, and how we approach things. Um, the, you know, the first thing that happened, I'll never forget this. We were in the U.S. I was actually doing some reporting there and, and she and my son came with me and we went to the Minnesota State Fair, which has always been a really fun thing to go to do. And there's two things really to do, three things to do at the Minnesota State Fair. People watch, eat and shop. But once, you know, I had already been going to a lot of these businesses and seeing all this stuff that there just isn't a reuse market for. And I would come home and tell her about it. And so we're at the state fair and, and we're both in kind of a gloomy mood because she had been showing her pictures of the stuff. And we reached a point about two hours into it where we said to each other, if we're not going to shop and we've already eaten, what are we doing here? And that kind of <laughs> extended, um, you know, overall to how we do a lot of things. And, and so, you know, instead of maybe taking you know, on a Saturday afternoon going to the mall. I mean, we're just not doing that sort of thing anymore because we don't want to fill up our house. We don't want to contribute to this problem. And ultimately, you know, when I saw uh, cleanouts of people who had passed away, you know, mm. such as the, you know, the storage unit, it started hitting me. I don't want to leave this kind of problem for my son because you've been around decluttering and it can be a very painful process emotionally just jarring. It can also mm -hmm. cause stress on families. And that's not a very nice thing to leave to your kids. You know, I, I just don't believe so. So in the back of my mind, I've, I mean, both my wife and I, we've thought, you know, it's not the first thing at the top of our mind, but in the back of our minds, I think we're both saying we don't want to do that to him. So, you know, that's in the back of our mind. But, you know, like everybody, we still need stuff. We can't get all of our stuff from the thrift store. Well, I mean, uh, especially men's clothing. It's very hard to thrift shop for men's clothing. So because there just isn't as much. And so uh, the way it's impacted our shopping and the way we approach our shopping is really to try and buy things that are more durable, things that, you know, will last longer. If we reach the point where we don't want it anymore, maybe it's something somebody else will want and can use because it's, it's well built. And so that, you know, that may mean spending a little bit more on something up front to get the more durable garment, the more durable phone, if you will. But long term, I think it's pretty good home economics as well. You know, you're you're spending more so you up front, so you spend less over the long haul. And it's good both for so your lived environment. You're not probably going to be accumulating as much clutter. And for the global environment, it's good good for the environment as a whole. So so that's been um, one way things have changed. And and then the other one, which has been a big change for our family, is my wife has actually become sort of by accident a used book dealer. That happened uh, because as I was in the midst of reporting this book, I started seeing all these excess books out there. And, you know, we're book lovers. I'm an author. And, and as I was seeing that stuff, my wife started going through her books and seeing damage because we live in Malaysia. It's very humid. Mm. And so uh, to her books. And so she decided to start selling them because if we're going to live in Malaysia, those books are not going to last. So we might as well get some money out of them and let other people enjoy them. And that went from selling her books off, and we had a lot of them, 
uh, she started going to thrift stores and buying books and, and basically sourcing books online. And she'd become a somewhat successful uh, used bookseller. So that was a big change in our life as well. Wow, that's great. I'm really interested to know, and I know our listeners will be too, if you could give our declutterers and our our tidiers one tip for the best thing that they could do to reduce their own environmental impact or overconsumption, what would that tip be? Buy better, buy more durable. I mean, I think that's the crucial, the crucial thing. So much of the problem that we have now, and anybody uh, who has come into a cluttered home knows this, the biggest problem we have now is that there's just an excess of low quality stuff that can't be sold, that can't be handed down. So it sounds a little bit like a paradox if you say, well, then just go buy better stuff. But if you're buying better stuff, um, it means it can be handed down. It means it can be brought to the donation center and the donation center is going to take one look at it and say, great, we can put this out on our shelves and it's going to move and it's going to move into somebody else's home and it's going to spark joy in them. And they may use it for a few years. And if it's well made, they may bring it back to us and it can keep going. So for me, really, it's all about increasing the durability in our homes, the things that we buy. If you can buy better stuff, that long term is, is going to reduce the burden all around. Well, I couldn't agree more. I often tell clients that they're so much better off if they, instead of buying five Gap t-shirts on sale for $10 each, if they buy one $50 t-shirt, they will be so much happier in the end. Amen. Yep. Love it. Thank you so much, Adam. We want to close by asking you, at this very moment, what sparks the most joy in your life? My son, he's five years old and I can't Uh wait to get home every night. And we live across the street from a park and I just can't wait to get out there. And and the two of us just run that field uh, across the street from us. That sparks joy in me more than anything. Excellent. And again, your book is secondhand. And where can our listeners find you? You can find me on LinkedIn on Twitter and on Facebook. I haven't gone on Insta yet. I, I, it's just so much uh, social media to juggle these days. And if they're interested in more information about me, they can just Google my name and they'll find uh, my website, just a very basic website with some basic information about me and where I do my writing. Perfect. We'll be sure to link your information in the show notes. And again, you should definitely check out Adam Mentor's book, Secondhand. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community or join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.